0: This morning we wrap up uh, the last installment of our twice-yearly mini-series we call Grace Stories, and, and based on your feedback, I would say these mini-series twice a year have become a highlight of our church, and I think one of the reasons um, we have appreciated these testimonies is that if the church at large is often accused by the world of hypocrisy, of being fake and superficial. These stories help us to tear down that impression, to avoid that kind of facade. They're as real as you get, stories told by members of GRC just like you and just like me. And these stories help push back against the stigma of asking for help, (coughs) asking for help, uh, against the stigma of admitting that I am weak, that I can't go on, that I um, need assistance, Uh, that I'm struggling with my faith. These stories remind us at the same time that in the midst of pain and turmoil and suffering and grief, that our hope remains grounded in the promises of God that are made sure and certain through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today, Hannah Lee is ready to share her story again, because she shared it in the first uh, service, of course. And it's a story that describes an all-too-familiar tug-of-war between the person who wants to exert control and God Himself, who alone is sovereign. Hannah will tell us how losing that battle is the most freeing thing that could ever happen to you. Thanks, Hannah.
1: My husband, Eddie, and I have been married for almost 11 years. When we got married, I wasn't ready to start a family. I had a timeline in my head of how things should progress in my life, and starting a family wasn't on the list yet. I was in control of my life. Even before we got married, I had a checklist. Get married before 28, advance in my career, and go to business school. It wasn't until after I finished business school that I decided I was ready to start a family. We got pregnant fairly quickly, and we're so excited for the baby. I made sure to take all precautions, like avoiding certain foods and being careful not to physically exert myself. I subscribed to all the email updates on how big my baby was. You know, the the emails that tell you your baby is the size of a blueberry and when the heartbeat starts to beat. The heartbeat. We went to our first doctor's appointment when I was eight or nine weeks pregnant and were excited to see the baby on the ultrasound. We were in the room chit chatting with the doctor, and the doctor fell silent. She kept scanning my belly. There was no heartbeat. The baby had stopped growing at the end of six weeks. What was supposed to be a happy moment in our lives became the complete opposite. It took us over a year and a half to get pregnant again. This delay in getting pregnant was interfering with my timeline for my life. What I wanted to control, I couldn't. I researched and tried many things to get pregnant. I knew my body's physical signs of when I should be ovulating, and I took eastern herbs and did acupuncture to help me get pregnant. And when I did get pregnant, I was even more cautious about everything. I didn't let myself get excited about the pregnancy until I saw the heartbeat. Even after that, I would worry about the baby until I saw him on the next ultrasound, or when I heard his heartbeat again. And then he came out nine months later, my healthy baby boy, Austin. A year later, I was ready for another baby. I got pregnant, and once again, I was excited but cautious about my pregnancy. I went to the doctor and knew what to look for this time. I looked for the bean-shaped sac with the heartbeat. As the doctor scanned my belly, I saw the bean-shaped sac. but before she could say anything, I knew what was happening. I nervously asked, you don't see a heartbeat, do you? The doctor shook her head. I got pregnant a few months later but I suffered yet another miscarriage. I had opted not to have a DNC with all of my miscarriages, but this one was the worst. I had to wait almost five weeks for the baby to pass, and I lost so much blood that I fainted four times and was in bed for a week after the baby came out. With each of my miscarriages, I didn't question why it happened, but I still wondered why my body could not sustain a pregnancy, and I still wanted to control something I could not control. What got me through the first loss was a small group of, group of close friends. Each of us suffered a miscarriage in the same year. I read a statistic that 20-25% to 25% of pregnancies end in miscarriage. Among the four of us, 100% of our first pregnancies ended in miscarriages. Despite the losses, I was blessed to have these friends to support me during this time. We could talk, pray, and empathize with each other after each of our losses. After my second loss, I attended the women's retreat for the first time. I didn't know many people at church, and I remember feeling uncomfortable. We had broken up into small groups and were sharing prayer requests. I opened up about my recent miscarriage, and I remember trying to be strong, but started tearing up when I talked about it. One woman said, it's okay to mourn the loss of your baby. That really hit me, because I didn't let myself mourn. I hurried to move past the loss, But it is okay to be sad about it. In the spring of 2014, the Women's Bible Study Group studied Tim Keller's book on Galatians. I had just had my third miscarriage as we started the study. This study really changed the way I viewed God's grace. I had grown up in a Christian family and attended church every Sunday. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. I knew that it was by God's grace that I was saved, but I grew up in a legalistic church and did not focus on grace. I couldn't help but feel guilty if I didn't go to church on Sundays or if I missed Bible study on a Friday night. But Galatians talks about the importance of faith, not works, to be saved. None of the laws of the Old Testament defined my spiritual identity in Christ. It was by God's grace through faith that saved me. I applied this to how how I was living my life. I relied too much on my own works, my timeline for my life, and I wanted to control everything. But God was showing me through these miscarriages that I couldn't rely on following the rules, and he showed me his amazing grace a few months later. That's when I got pregnant again. This surprised me because it didn't make sense for me to get pregnant. Like I said... I had done all the research about getting pregnant. I knew my own ovulation cycle and how to read the physical signs of my body to determine the best time to get pregnant. And if that didn't do it, I had a, also had a fertility monitor that told me when I should get pregnant. I was in control of my fertility. That month, the monitor didn't show that I had ovulated. I was not supposed to get pregnant, but I did. And God showed me that he doesn't follow the rules. He is more powerful than that. I started to let go of my fears of another miscarriage because I knew that God was in control no matter what happened. This time, my pregnancy did not end in a miscarriage. Nine months later, we were blessed with a beautiful baby girl. While While we were waiting for her to arrive, we struggled with naming our daughter. Eddie and I could never agree on a name, but one night, Eddie had a dream. He rarely has dreams, and when he does, he never remembers what the dream is about. He dreamt of the name Evelyn. In his dream, he heard her name three times. He told me about his dream the next day, and of course the first thing I did was Google Evelyn. (laughs) The meaning that came up was wished for child. We hadn't even considered that name, but God revealed in a dream the name for our daughter. So now we have Evelyn Grace, our wished for child, given to us by God's grace. After Evelyn was born, We knew we wanted more children, so we got pregnant pretty quickly. This time, I thought I had it figured out. I would get pregnant and get the miscarriage out of the way. You see, I never had a full-term pregnancy without having a miscarriage first. So, I assumed I would have another miscarriage and then try again for another child. Again, God showed me that he is in control, not me. I didn't have a miscarriage this time, and we were blessed with our son Isaac, and God... Clearly thought I could handle three kids with two of them 18 months apart. (laughs) It took three miscarriages for me to see that I need to let go and let God handle things his way. I still have issues with control in my life. I'm still a work in progress. But I'm constantly reminded that his grace really is sufficient for me.
0: Father, thank you for giving Hannah the strength to share this this morning and share it twice, Lord, and thank you for all the work that you have done in her heart to draw close to her, to offer her comfort and compassion, but also, Lord, to draw her to yourself in childlike trust, daughter and daddy, in closer and closer intimacy, Lord. That certainly is Your longing for her and for the rest of us. And in the midst of pain, Lord, You brought that redeeming aspect. We thank You. We thank You that the testimony is already having an impact, and we pray that it would only multiply as Your Spirit uses this to heal other wounds. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, if we only had tissues to go around, Steve will share as many as he has. <laughs> Four years ago, we started these grace stories. And actually, the, the honest description is God started these grace stories because for years beforehand, I had wanted to incorporate more and more testimonial into our worship services. I just couldn't figure out how to kickstart it. We had one a year on Easter Sunday, and it was hard work just figuring out who could provide that once-a-year Easter Sunday testimony. But God, in His perfect timing, brought it about, sowing seeds that were unnoticed at the time, like when I randomly asked a deacon named Werner if he'd be interested in going to a conference for this ministry called Celebrate Recovery. I'd got an email in my inbox, never heard of it, asked him if he'd be willing to go explore it. And that opened up a a whole good can of worms, a movement, if you will, to impact the culture here at Grace Redeemer Church. And God was sowing more seeds, like leading us to hire an executive director named Ken, who happened to have a professional counseling background, to take that ministry to the next level here at GRC. And God was using me... At the same time, in uh, two shepherding, counseling situations in particular that led to two out of our first three grace stories, he did this. And since then, twice a year, God has raised up three courageous people to share their stories, to stand up here in front of hundreds of you and talk about their pain and brokenness, but their steadfast faith in the midst of it. We keep pressing hard. We keep digging. We keep asking. We keep cultivating this idea. I tell everyone I can, you have a grace story. And no, it's never wrapped up and tidy, and they lived happily ever after. You have a grace story, and it's in process. It's in the middle. It might only be one chapter long. It might be messy, (laughs) It might not be edited and proofread, but you have a story. And um, if anyone approached us with this perfect little tidy story, um, my reaction would be, no thank you, because the message it would send to everybody else is, I can't relate to that. My life will never be like that. I can't even imagine being so cleaned up and ordered and everything working out in my life. We, We don't put forth, I've never heard that. We don't put forth stories like that. We put them forth in their raw, authentic honesty because that is life as fallen creatures in a fallen world. We push hard for grace stories because these testimonies powerfully reflect something that is at the core of who we are as Grace Redeemer Church. We proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in everything that we do and say. We affirm that I am weak, but Jesus is strong. I can do nothing to accomplish my own salvation, but Jesus has done everything. In my sin, I am nothing. I do not have an identity worth boasting in, but in Christ, He has declared me to be somebody significant. He gives me that identity. We say all that. We believe all that. And we back up those words and thoughts with our actions when we share our stories with one another, open and honest stories about faith in the midst of trial. When I was trying to find three stories for this month and praying hard that God would provide them to us, God would open up hearts, God would give courage, a few people, a few people said no, which I expect. Um, a couple of them may say yes the next time. It's all in God's timing. I don't push. I ask, I invite, sometimes I do encourage. But this time there was a little wrinkle. Um, Over these four years, Hannah's is grace story number 25. Praise God. It just so happened that number 24, Kristen's story, was also... uh, a story for the first time sharing about the heart-wrenching and all-too-common experience of losing an unborn baby to miscarriage. And I was tempted when I read Kristen's draft, because I already knew what Hannah had on her heart to share from months ago, I was tempted to approach these women and say, well, maybe one of you could save your story for the next time. Um, We would love to do this again in September. Because the stories have similar themes, but then God quickly prompted my heart to realize, no, just as the grace stories from the very beginning were a God thing, God in His wisdom, I can't explain this, saw fit to enable Kristen and Hannah, 24 and number 25, the first stories of all of these stories over four years to share similar stories of pain. And one guess that I could make is that some of you have silently suffered, and you need to hear back-to-back painful stories, or you weren't here last week, to prompt you to seek help through the support of other women, or through counseling, or through simply knowing that you are not alone. This is God's doing. We're just following along. Excuse me. Our text this morning is a single verse from the last night of Jesus' life. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane with a few of his disciples praying desperately on his hands and knees. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. Listen carefully, these are God's words. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. This is God's Word. There is so much that boggles the mind about that single verse representing that single scene from the end of Jesus' life, but we're just going to look at a few details this morning. First, Jesus prays that the cup would be taken away from Him. What does that mean? Well, the cup was a consistent metaphor in the Old Testament that represented God's wrath, His just response of judgment upon sin. Just as a judge in a courtroom has to punish sin, otherwise He's not just, God, as the ultimate judge, responds to sin with righteous wrath. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 51 Verse 17, this is what we read, Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger because God had brought judgment upon His own people because of their turning away to false gods, idols. But then a few verses later, we see a picture of God's mercy his relenting from his judgment. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. And that comes to fulfillment at the end of the Bible, at the end of history. Revelation 14 describes one scene Describing that false worshipers, verse 10, will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of His wrath. What does this have to do with Jesus? Everything. It has everything to do with Jesus, especially on this last night of His life, anticipating what would happen on Good Friday the next day on the cross of Calvary. On the night he was betrayed, on the night before he was killed, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane in agony, in prayer, on his hands and knees, not just thinking about the intense physical suffering that he was about to endure, um, this most barbaric, most torturous execution method called Roman crucifixion, he wasn't just thinking about the physical suffering, I would argue he was dreading something far worse in agony, in prayer, sweating droplets of blood, the the spiritual suffering that awaited him on the cross when the Father would turn his face away and abandon the Son and exile him to the hell that our sins deserve. That's far worse than nails through your flesh. If we put all these pieces together, here's why this scene is so mind-boggling. Jesus is the divine and human Son of God. He is fully God and fully man. There, there is no godness. There's nothing of who God the Father is that Jesus lacks. He's no less divine. And there's nothing about His humanity that is any different than you and I as men and women. He was fully Human, and yet in his full humanity, he is asking the Father if there can be another way to accomplish the salvation of his sinful people. He's struggling with aligning his personal desire with the desire of the Father. We might say that Jesus doesn't get what he wants, but that's not really true. When he prays, yet not as I will, but as you will, He is yielding His heart to the Father. The the word will here means to wish, to desire, to want. And desire, we could say, is almost always more a matter of the heart than of the mind or the will. Desire, the affections of the heart, they, they motivate our actions, they motivate our thinking. Here's why I'm saying it's not true that Jesus didn't get what He wanted Because his greater desire wins out, and that desire is that the will of the Father prevail. Does he wish that there could be another way? Absolutely. He asks for it, but he gets the answer. There is no other way. And so Jesus willingly puts aside his desire, wanting the Father's superior desire to come about. He gets what he wants because his desires are properly oriented to something greater. This isn't just Jesus being resigned to losing the argument. This isn't Jesus like a petulant child saying, "'Oh, I wanted to do this. I wanted to stay outside, but you're not letting me.'" Okay. He's not resigned to the father's decision that is against his desire, and he's just a good little boy. He absolutely is obedient. He absolutely was righteous. He absolutely did submit himself to the Father's will. But Jesus somehow trusts, Jesus trusts that somehow, some way, the Father would make all things right. That's a superior desire. You know better than I do. I want what you want. This is Jesus trusting that the Father's desire is that which will bring about highest joy and lasting treasure. We see that uh, amazingly when the author of Hebrews writes this in chapter 12, verse 2, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, you might think that's exaggeration. You know, it couldn't possibly be true, but Jesus somehow was able to trust and see that the father's desire, not his own personal desire, was superior and would actually bring about joy. Hannah and Eddie's desire, their will, was a good one. It's part of God's perfect design of the life of a husband and a wife in a family to bear children. The Lord says to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply. And yet, so much of what Hannah described as sources of her anxiety and fear came from her desire to be in control. It was a good desire, and she wanted to determine, can't we all relate to this? She wanted to determine how and when and what the plan of her life would look like. I think this connects with what John Chung said earlier. You know, this is a good thing, but it becomes an idol when it becomes an ultimate thing. When we exert control over what this good thing should look like and how it should function and what role it should play in our lives, it's suddenly taken on a life of its own, and the good thing becomes twisted and corrupted. Like all of us, Hannah might have said that her greatest desire was for her desires to be satisfied. I think we'd all say, if we were honest with ourselves, what I want most is whatever I want. And if we were to form that into an immature, unhealthy prayer, it would sound like this. Let my will be done, O Lord. That makes no sense O Lord, as the sovereign one, as the superior one, for us to say that, let my will be done. But that's the prayer of our hearts so very often in life. In her grief, Hannah wondered if there could be another way. If it be possible, take this cup from me. But it wasn't until she more personally and more fully experienced, understood the grace of God at the heart of the gospel—that she experienced real freedom to let go, to yield to another, to to trust simply like a child. In other words, to to be able to pray yet not as I will, but as you will. Yours be done. That, that's not being resigned to fatalism. That's not just saying oh, I lost. I didn't get what I want. That's putting your hands. Uh, putting yourself in the hands of a perfect Father and trusting that somehow some way, he will make all things right. He will bring about greater joy, just as our Savior did. This scene from Jesus last night of life offers us strength to trust, and, and I'll suggest in two different ways. First of all, there's the example of Jesus yielding to the perfect will of His Father, despite what Jesus Himself desired. He trusted, despite the anticipation of the um, horrible suffering that He was about to uh, experience, extremely so, physically and spiritually. He trusted still. And the Father transformed the sheer darkness of Friday into the brightest dawn of Easter Sunday. The example of Jesus shows us that the Father was worthy to be trusted. And the work of Jesus reinforces that. that. What was the ultimate result of His yielding to the Father's will? It was the accomplishment of salvation. He secured ultimate joy. He made it possible for sinners like us to be restored into perfect relationship with the holy and just God. He, he did it. He rescued His people from certain death. And that assures us more than anything that the Father's heart is to be trusted. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, How will He along with Him? How will He not along with Him? Graciously give us all things, and graciously heal all wounds, and graciously satisfy all good desires. See, gospel grace brings freedom. That's at the heart of Hannah's story, giving up control. How did that happen? Somebody didn't come along and say, stop it, Hannah give it up. She went into the gospel in the book of Galatians. She saw the freedom that comes from trusting in God, not only for her circumstances, but for something more profound and fundamental, trusting in God to take care of it all, starting with rescue from sin and death, from eternal condemnation. And it makes perfect sense because if God took care of the most impossible problem, how will I ever escape this sentence that I deserve for my own sin? If God took care of the impossible, can't He and won't He take care of the lesser things? If God has rescued you from sin and death through no doing of your own, can He not be… At the cost of His Son, He who did not spare His own Son, can He not be trusted to work out the lesser things of your life that you can't solve and explain and escape. Last thought. As we all know now, Eddie doesn't dream that much, but when he does, he forgets it. (laughs) Um, Eddie's mama did not name him Joseph, interpreter of dreams, but God gave him one dream and revealed to him the name Evelyn, wished for child. Here's the raw aspect of our grace stories, people. You don't always get what you wish for. Eddie and Hannah wished for three other children that are not with them this morning. It was a good wish. But those children were lost, and we can't explain that. There's mystery in following after Jesus, there are unknowns. There are reasons that our faith has hiccups and hits road bumps. But there's also great comfort in knowing that even Jesus set aside his own desire so that greater desire might win out. The perfect will of a perfect father to bring about something greater, longest lasting, more valuable treasure. And that's not a gift. That is not a, uh, the blessing of particular circumstances working out in your life. That is the Lord God Himself to be enjoyed in perfect, intimate, absolute, trusting relationship. Do you want to go to heaven because you imagine all the things you'll get to enjoy, all the freedom that you'll experience, all the rest. That's not what makes heaven glorious. The new heavens and the new earth, the end reality to which God is bringing all things, is glorious because all who trust in Jesus will be in His very presence. That is the greatest joy that we could long for. Is that your highest desire? If it is, then all these things will be added unto you, Jesus promises. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the story this morning, not only of Hannah and Eddie and trials they have endured, but also the way you have brought healing and freedom Lord, ultimately because of the story with a capital S, the story of Jesus, the climactic chapter in all of history, when Jesus prayed, yet not as I will, but as You will. May that become our prayer, Lord. May we trust as Jesus did. May we abandon ourselves to Your will and know that somehow, someway, You will make all things right.